Like Bruce said, um, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Just really thanks for coming. So, like, really glad to see everybody. And um, yeah, so uh, yeah, we live in the Asbury area. And um, yeah, we moved here about a year and a half ago to go start the church. And so, we're really excited to um, see what God's doing, like, through River City and just. Uh, and just also jump into passages like we're going to today. So, all right, so we're going to jump into Leviticus 16 in the Old Testament. So we'll start at verse 5, so the, the passage will be up on the screen. We're going to start at verse 5 and just kind of skip around a little bit. And this is God himself giving instructions about sacrifices on a special day of the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So in the he, um, in this passage um, that God is talking about, um, in the first verses, that's a guy named Aaron who is a high priest, not me. Like there's a guy named um, Aaron who's the high priest and he's the one who's doing a lot of the sacrificing. So this is not the kind of passage you preach on Mother's Day. So we're going to jump into it. We're going to buckle up and then jump right into it. Leviticus 16, verse 5. From the Israelite community, he, Aaron, it's to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to, then he is to take the two goats, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the two goats, so let's pay attention to what's going on with those two. And he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, which is kind of like a mobile temple area where they do sacrifices. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the, for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be, be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement, sending, into the wilderness as a, sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Let's skip down to verse 15. So he, Aaron, shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the, blood, the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place, which is essentially part of the, that mobile temple. Because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them and in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out. Having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. So let's skip down to verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess it over, confess it, over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, which probably took a long time, and put, on the, put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. Goat will carry on itself all the sins, all their sins, to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. 
So a passage like this, this is probably not the first passage that you read to your kids on Christmas morning. So sometimes Gracie, um, um, sometimes, uh, so in the mornings, I us- usually my routine is um, after I go to the gym, I read my Bible, um, and uh, I drink my coffee and stuff on our kitchen aisle at our kitchen island, and sometimes Gracie sits next to me, so sometimes Gracie confidently declares, Dad, let's read the Bible together. And not surprisingly, I've never told her, hey, let's read Leviticus about the goats and everything. Like, let's do that. So, and just so you know, Leviticus is usually the book of the Bible where people's Bible reading plans, like, go to die. So, um, so my mom started following Jesus a couple years ago, and my mom is this straight-edge accountant. You know, you give her a plan. It's like, man, she's going to follow it. So, um, so she did one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans. And um, so I knew she was doing this. And at Christmas time, she was like, hey, I, I finished my whole Bible reading plan for the whole year. And I'm like, mom, that's awesome. So you got through Leviticus? <laughs> like, I mean, it was just like, man, you really got through that. That's really great. So here's the deal with Leviticus. When we read a passage like this in Leviticus chapter 16, we're jolted with culture shock. And we're tempted towards what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which is basically when we think we are morally and culturally superior because we live in the present. We're snobby about the sensibilities and practices of people in ancient history because they just don't get it, and we're just a little superior to them. And our chronological snobbery isn't just isolated to the ancient past. So author Tim Keller, um, he's often said that every generation is embarrassed by 80% of what their great-grandparents believed. And if you don't believe me about that, um, look at your family pictures when you were a kid, and like, I dare you to not be embarrassed by what your parents are wearing. I mean, even I, I mean, I mean, my oldest daughter is 11. So even I look back at pictures like when she was born, I'm just like, wow, I, I went out in public like looking like that. <laughs> um, and if every generation is embarrassed by 80% of what their great grandparents believed, that means that your great grandchildren are going to be embarrassed by 80% of everything you think, believe, and do. So think about everything about you your great-grandparents will be embarrassed by 80% of it. So which 80% of it do you think it's going to be? So every generation is snobby about the past because they think they are the most enlightened people who have ever walked the earth. But the truth is that no time period is completely enlightened, and every generation, including ours, overrates how enlightened we are. So we need to remember that, especially when we're reading a passage like this in Leviticus. Instead of being snobby and writing them off as simple, unenlightened people that were doing a bunch of animal sacrifices for some reason, we should seek first to understand before we seek to be understood. So why would their God want them to sacrifice goats in this very prescribed exact way? Like, what's the deal with that? So make no mistake about it, there is a cultural jolt when we read a passage like this. But if we can withstand the initial jolt and hang on for the ride, um, my hope is that we'll eventually see the beauty and practicality for why this is in the Bible. 
So with that in mind, uh, there's two things I'm going to do this morning. One, I'm going to explain what the heck is going on in this passage. That's the first thing. <laughs> you know, because at first glance, um, it seems a little out there. And then two, I'm going to explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of what's going on in this passage. All right. So what the heck is going on in this passage? So like I said before, Leviticus, detail, Leviticus 16, this details like a really special day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So if you are, a, if you are Jewish in the 21st century, and you, you, know, you still celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So if you buy a calendar at Hobby Lobby, it's like Yom Kippur is on there, okay? So, um, so if you are a Jewish in the 21st century, you don't kill goats or anything like that at the, you know, because their temple got destroyed in AD 70. And that's where that kind of stuff is supposed to happen. So in Leviticus 16, they had a mobile temple called the Tent of Meeting. Eventually they got a permanent temple. That one got destroyed by the Romans. Long story short, they just don't do that anymore. So now in Leviticus 16, we implicitly see that God is different than us, he's better than us, and he's perfect. And the fancy word that the Bible uses to describe those things is that he's holy. And by contrast, we are not holy. We go our way and not God's way in our nature and by choice. And, and that's what that passage is getting at when verse 16, when it talks about the uncleanness and rebellion and sin of the Israelites. God is holy and we are not holy. So with that as the backdrop, the first goat enters the scene. This was an agricultural community. Like it was, they didn't have stock markets or portfolios or financial management like careers. Like this was an agricultural community. Of course, there were like there were going to be animals involved. Animals were really valuable. The first goat is killed to show the people that their sin against a holy God. It's so bad that something needs to die. And not just something, something really valuable. Instead of them dying, the goat dies in their place. The goat is substituted for them. The goat takes the punishment that the people deserve. They deserve to be that goat. But the goat is one, the one who dies instead of them. But the question is, at that point, um, why is that? It's like, is God being too harsh? So when one of my kids disobeys me, I don't feel the need for a, a sacrifice to be made in order for my relationship to be like, you know, um, just restored with my kids. Like, what's the deal with that? So, so author David Platt, he's written the following, and um, this has really helped me understand like what's going on in a passage like this. So here's what he writes. He says, Azim, an Arab follower of Jesus and a friend of mine, told me recently how he, was going to be t- how he was talking about the gospel with a taxi driver in his country. The taxi driver said he hadn't done too many really bad things, so surely God wouldn't feel the need to punish him. So Azim said to him, If I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? The driver replied, I would throw you out of my taxi. Azim continued, If I went up to a random guy on the street and slapped him in the face, what would he do to me? The driver said, He would probably call his friends and beat you up. 
Azim asked, what if I went up to a policeman and slapped him in the face? What would he do to me? The driver replied, you would get beat up for sure, and then you'd get thrown in jail. Finally, Azim posed this question. What if I walked up to the king of this country and slapped him in the face? What would happen to me then? The driver looked at Azim and awkwardly laughed. He told Azim, you would die. Azim's point was that the penalty for sin is not determined by our magnitude of it. Instead, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. If you sin against a log, you are not very guilty. On the other hand, if you sin against a man or a woman, then you are absolutely guilty. And ultimately, if you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you are infinitely guilty. So God is showing the people with that first goat that sin needs to be forgiven, punished, and atoned for because of who we have sinned against. That's what the first goat is about. The first goat takes the punishment we deserve because we have sinned against a holy, an infinitely holy and righteous God. Then enters the second goat. The first goat showed that the people's sin needs to be forgiven, punished, and atoned for. They deserve the death that goat died. But the second goat, something else different but important is going on with that guy. The priest puts his hands on the goat's head and symbolically transfers the sin of the people onto the second goat. And then the goat is sent out into the wilderness far, far removed from the people. This was to show that in addition to our sin needing to be forgiven and punished and atoned for, our guilt and shame from sin need to be removed from us. So the second goat shows that our shame and guilt from sin are now so far removed from us in God's eyes, it's almost like it's way out in the wilderness. That's how far away our guilt and shame are. We're not just forgiven in God's eyes. And that's a big deal. I don't want to minimize that. But we are not just forgiven in God's eyes. We're cleansed in God's eyes. The goat has left the building and our shame and our guilt are taken with it. That's what's going on in this passage. So now we're going to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of what's going on in this passage. And as weird as it sounds, if we're going to understand, because I was thinking a lot about this this week, um, if we're going to understand um, how Jesus is the fulfillment of what's going on in this passage with the goats, we need to first understand the plot line of one of the most underrated movies of the 21st century, which excuse me, the 20th century, which is The Karate Kid. So if you've seen the movie, you know that Daniel LaRusso and his mom, they move from wherever they moved from to California, and uh, Daniel gets beat up by a high school karate gang, which is the best kind of gang, um, uh, named the Cobra Kai. So in order to get, um, get better at karate so he can take down the Cobra Kai and not get beat up at Halloween parties, um, he gets trained by a karate master named Mr. Miyagi. Now, Mr. Miyagi's a cool guy. 
He just knows a lot about karate. He's a man of few words. So Mr. Miyagi agrees to trade in Daniel, but instead of straight up teaching him karate, uh, Mr. Miyagi puts Daniel to work doing odd jobs around his house. Sand the floor, wax the car, wax on, wax off, paint the house, paint the fence. And Daniel had to do these, these, these chores or these odd jobs just in very prescribed kind of ways. And he did it for weeks until Daniel is finally just totally fed up. And he just, he comes at Mr. Miyagi. He's like, I'm just, I'm just a slave around your house. I thought I was going to be learning karate. Like, and now I'm just doing odd jobs. Like, what's going on with this? Like, I'm out of here. I quit. So Mr. Miyagi just very patiently says to him, show me all your move. Show me all your, you know, your motions for all your jobs. So he's a, so Daniel does like, Sand the floor. It's just very precise. Need to do all those things. Wax on, wax off. You know, paint the house. Like paint the fence. And then, so after Daniel does all these moves and you know these motions in front of Mr. Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi, suddenly Mr. Miyagi goes nuts on him. You know, he just starts doing all these karate moves, which I will not demonstrate right now. So he just does all these moves, like ah, it's because he's a karate master. And then Daniel just freaks out and just, ah, you know, and he just instinctually does like all these, you know, the same motion. He blocks all of his moves, you know, doing the same motions that he's been doing all the odd jobs with. Like, you know, he just blocks all his moves. And um, so, and so Mr. Miyagi stops like attacking him, you know, and like Daniel's just like, you can, his eyes are like this big. He's just, he gets it. Like, He's been learning karate this whole time. And like Mr. Miyagi knew what he was doing. And like Mr. Miyagi just whispers to him, like, come back tomorrow. And like Daniel's like, okay, I'll do it. So so Mr. Miyagi was teaching Daniel about karate the whole time. But Daniel didn't know it. In hindsight, Mr. Miyagi knew exactly what he was doing the whole time because he knew how to best accomplish his purpose. In a similar way with the goats, as weird as that sounds, God was teaching the Israelites about Jesus and redemption the whole time, but they didn't even know it. And in hindsight, God knew exactly what he was doing the whole time because he knew how to best accomplish his purpose. Now, some of us may disagree with that. Like, that was pretty dumb of Mr. Miyagi and God. It's like, he could have figured out a better way to do that. It's like, you know, and I, you know, people who have been following Jesus much longer than I have, and like, I think I can even say this too, is that, you know, sometimes when things don't make sense in our own lives, like, several years later, when we look back, on it, on our lives and the stuff that didn't make sense. We're just like, oh, okay. God knew what he was doing the whole time and he was working it out and everything. Like, I just didn't understand. Like, what I just need to do is like, trust God and he knows what he's doing. He knows how to best accomplish his purpose. And that's true with the little stuff in our lives. And that's true with just something like this with Leviticus 16. He knew how to teach about Jesus and redemption the whole time. 
He knows how to best accomplish his purpose. So we're going to take a quick look at Hebrews 10. So this is where Mr. Miyagi just like enters the scene and explains everything about what's going on in Leviticus 16. So if you're confused a lot of times by the Old Testament, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is really basically a commentary and an answer key of sorts like for the old, understanding the Old Testament and what was going on and what God was doing in the Old Testament. So Hebrews 10, we're going to go through the first 14 verses. Verse 1. So the law, which said like you had to do all these sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, like with the goats, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not, sto- would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all it would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. So the goats and that kind of stuff, like that was just an annual reminder of sins. They were meant to point, they weren't going to accomplish anything. They were, the, they were meant to point us to something better, something greater, something more lasting, something more beautiful, something more permanent and robust, like Jesus. It's meant to point us to Jesus. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's a better sacrifice out there than goats. Verse 5, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, like the goats, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And that's a fancy way right there. Of, that's a fancy way of saying that Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. Because all those sacrifices and goats, um, that's not what ultimately what God is after. Like what he's after is you. Like he, he, you're the one that God wants. Like, that's what he's ultimately after. And that's why he sent Jesus. Verse 8. First he said, Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law, because they were doing what they were supposed to be doing at the time. Verse 9. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. So he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, in other words, the life and death of Jesus, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And what that verse is saying is that Jesus is the better sacrifice to make atonement for our sin We deserve to be that goat who was killed. And Jesus is the only one who ever didn't, whoever, you know, he's the only one who didn't deserve to die like that goat. But he laid down his life willingly, sacrificially, lovingly, so that we can be made holy and our guilt and shame be taken away. 
And we are so loved that Jesus was happy to do that. He didn't do that begrudgingly. He was happy to do that. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, like Leviticus 16. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, they're talking about Jesus here, because like, Jesus is the better Aaron who is like, you know, interceding for the people. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Verse 14, and this is where it really gets good. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And that's probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Um, I don't think I'm a, it was my favorite verse kind of person, but like, that's probably my favorite verse because it just sums up so much in the gospel. If you belong to Jesus, you have been made perfect forever, even though from your vantage point, you're in the process of being made holy and you can't get your act together. That's really good news. So here's the deal. Your life will be forever changed when you deeply and authentically wrestle with the question of, what does God think about me and why? Because the answer for that question is ultimately found in Jesus. So you have his favor and none of the guilt and shame because Jesus took care of that, all that. All that goat stuff in the Old Testament, that was only a shadow of what Jesus was going to, God was going to accomplish through Jesus. If Jesus has already been punished for your sin, then you need to stop punishing yourself. You need to come to him. If Jesus has already taken away your guilt and shame, then you need to stop trying to take care of that on your own. He's the one who's taking care of that. Rest in what he's done for you. And if Jesus has already been punished, then there's probably someone in your life that you need to stop punishing. Um, so I have, a, I, have a good, um, I have some good friends who live in Cedar Rapids named Evan and Bree. Um, yeah, they're happily married, like, Evan works for Alliant, and um, Bree is a teacher in one of the inner city schools down there. Um, so they're really open about this. They talk about it very openly, so they would be okay with me talking about this and like just using their real names and everything. So um, yeah, and they're happily married right now, like I said, but um, they almost didn't get engaged <laughs> um, because right before they were going to get engaged, uh, Evan confessed something to Bree that he did to really hurt Bree. So Evan felt horrible. He was super repentant, but it was it was still really hurtful to her. <laughs> um, like she was ready to dump him and not get married and call it quits. They had been dating for years. Um, so after a week, after the um, at, but after a week after the emotional shrapnel was done flying around and everything. Um, I remember Bree standing in my kitchen, and she said, I've talked to Evan, and we decided that 
we're going to let the gospel be the foundation for how we get through this. It's going to take time for me to rebuild trust with him, but Jesus was punished for Evan and his sin against me. So I don't need to punish him anymore. You know, because the truth is, like, you can dink around with behavior modification and, like, all that kind of stuff, but that kind of change only happens through the gospel. That's only empowered by the gospel. So we take communion every week after the sermon. So in communion, the bread represents the body of Jesus. The juice represents his blood. And it was his body and blood were broken and shed for us, which is good news. And it was broken and shed for you once and for all to make you perfect forever by his perfect sacrifice. Guilt and shame are not part of that equation. He is the perfect sacrifice, and that's why we, we remember and respond to him in communion. So here at River City, the bread and the juice are in the back. There's a bowl for bread. You take a piece, you dip it in the juice, and that's how you take communion. So the worship team is going to be playing three songs. Um, anytime during, during those three songs, you can pray on your own and um, just really remembering and responding to him personally. Um, and whenever you're ready, you can go back to take communion on your own. You can go back on your own. You can go as couples. You can go as a family. Like I go with my kids usually. You can do whatever you feel comfortable with with that. Let's pray. So God, thank you so much that um, like uh, just for you and like what you've accomplished for us. And um, we really want to worship you and be thankful as opposed to like offering our own sacrifices in a day. <laughs> um, in response to your sacrifice. Like the only sacrifice we have to give is thankfulness <laughs> and just responding to you like that, God. Yeah, thanks for taking care of everything. Thanks for pursuing us. It's like, yeah, and we're sorry for having sinned against you because you're holy and you're God and we're not. And thank you for just making, like renewing us, making us perfect forever, even though even though we're being made holy in our sight, God. Yeah, thank you for your sacrifice. Please empower us to live in light of the gospel and what you've accomplished for us. Yeah, yeah, and we pray for the, just the culture of River City, like for us individually, but just as a culture of as River City to just really have the gospel be the foundation of how we think about life and about each other and just about um, everything, God. Yeah, so we really trust you for that. And like, yeah, we just, we push all the chips into the, into the middle, like on what you've done, God. Yeah, we need you to produce, produce that. Yeah, we love you. Amen.